Hi, I'm Zach Mathern, a project architect with JLG Architects. Along with my colleague, Isaac Carley, we're continuing the Community Matters podcast, where we listen to gain perspectives to better serve communities and the entire people within communities. We are continuing to explore incarceration today from another perspective with Michelle Erickson, the executive director of the Abused Adult Resource Center, otherwise known as AARC, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Michelle's perspective helps to ground incarceration as a community issue. AARC's work in providing support services for survivors of domestic violence while also supporting those convicted of domestic abuse demonstrates a holistic understanding of trauma and community supports. This conversation with Michelle explores the question, how can we as a community support rehabilitation and ultimately stop repeat and generational offending? Michelle's logical and empathetic nature gives us comfort to have this conversation about otherwise challenging subject matter. Note there is discussion of abuse and violence in this episode. I'm grateful for our time with Michelle, and I hope you gain perspective from our conversation. Episode 2, The Community Matters Podcast, JLG Architects. I'm Michelle Erickson. Uh, I live here in, or live in Mandan, but I work in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, I am the executive director of the Abused Adult Resource Center, and I've been there uh, 17 years. I pretty much am a North Dakotan. I will just say that. I lived here most of my life. Um, I've been involved actually in the prison system through working part-time for DOCR as a side job for a few years. Um, I wrote pre-sentence investigation reports on offenders. Um, so I kind of got to see that side of it as well as working with victims with my job. So um, kind of familiar with both sides of the coin, but also, um, you know, just understanding how people grow up in a in a situation where from the time they're kids, they're in trouble and then it just keeps going and going and how... I agreed with some of the things you said about how we have to somehow either break that cycle or make it possible that we don't need incarceration. But where does that start? You know, where do you where do you start getting people um, involved in positive experiences so they're not ending up in in and out of jail over the years? All right, thanks for that intro. Um, I think that really leads into uh, my first question. Just generally, I'd like to know a little bit more about. What specific services does the Abused Adult Resource Center provide and who in our community needs those services? Sure. Um, I can talk about AARC all day, so I will try to make it not terribly long. Um, Our agency has been around in the community for over 45 years. And at this point, we have about 70 employees and we operate out of eight buildings, actually. Um, so b- our basic services are crisis intervention. That's our number one is just, you know, talking to people that are experiencing situations such as domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, stalking, dating violence, um, those interpersonal crimes. And, you know, we just want to find out what's going on and what people need. So we sort of have this motto of meeting people where they're at. We're not going to tell you, you need to do this or you need to do that. We want to know what you need help with, and then we'll try to figure it out. Um, So from there, we have options like emergency shelter, um, transitional housing, 
We've got some other housing programs where we help people get into apartments in the community, and then we provide some rental assistance as well as some case management. We have a seven-unit apartment building um, for singles or efficiency apartments, and um, there's no staff on site. So it's basically an apartment building, but you still are open to getting the rest of the services, case management and whatnot. Um, we can help with applying for protection orders. We'll sit through the the hearings with our clients. Um, we work on them, work with them on safety planning, so that if they are going to stay in a situation that's not super healthy, at least maybe they can stay a little bit safer or mm. know what to do so they don't end up in a situation like that again. Um, we also have a supervised visitation facility. So when there's parents that might have a court order not allowing them to be in the same room with each other, they can still have healthy and safe parenting time through our facility. Um, and then it's monitored and documented by our staff. Um, we also have a thrift store, Seeds of Hope, which contributes about 30% to our $2.7 million uh, annual budget. So it's really important to us. And through that store, we do a few other things. We provide clothing for anybody in the community for a new job or an interview. Um, and so particularly how this might relate to um, the topic at hand is that we see a lot of people come out of incarceration and then they're maybe in a halfway place or, um, you know, a transition center or just getting out on the streets and they're leaving without anything and they want to get a job or, or, you know, they have interviews coming up and they have nothing decent to wear. And we kind of feel like anybody will feel more confident going into that interview or that first day of their job if they have a nice outfit and a clean mm -hmm. pair of shoes. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. We do that for anybody in the community. They don't have to be one of our clients. Um, our clients that move out of our shelters into their own apartments will help them furnish their apartments through Seeds of Hope at no cost. So they get to kind of go pick out, you know, their bedding and their towels and pots and pans and those kind of things. Um, and then we operate an education and employment program. So if somebody wants to go back to school or learn to write a resume or get some retail experience, we sort of do that in conjunction with Seeds of Hope. Um, one of the newer programs we started last year was the Domestic Violence Offender Treatment, um, which is kind of new for us because normally we work with the victims, but we also kind of felt like if we could offer this service, it would be another way to decrease violence in the community. That's so interesting because that's a topic that Isaac and I thought of. Like, you know, there's there's people that are victims and they need help but then is there empathy for the abusers themselves? Do they need help? Right. And where does that yeah. come? So that, that program is actually in our century code. And it's a, um, if you're convicted of a domestic violence crime, then you're ordered to take a offender treatment course. Um, the one that we offer, which is the one most places in North Dakota offer, is an evidence-based program out of Duluth. Um, and it's a 24- to 26-week program. Uh, there's an accountability piece where that offender has to pay for those classes, but we've tried to make it reasonable so that it's affordable. Um, and then they have to show up and they have to participate. And um, the Grand Forks Community Violence Intervention Center has been doing it for several years, and they track people for two years after they leave that program. And recidivism rates have been down dramatically for those that have completed that program. So we felt like it was a natural fit for us, even though we started out as a victim provider, victim service provider. Um, why wouldn't we want to 
help the offenders not do what they're doing again. So, yeah. Um, so the, the last year was our first year. I believe we had 17 enrolled throughout the year and we had nine graduates. So we're starting out slow, but um, I think it can only grow. And I think it's a good way to, to, to make a difference through the offender in the community as well. What are the things that you sell to legislators to, to sort of prove the value of these programs? Is it recidivism? Uh, I guess both on the offender side and both on the victim side. Sure. Um, you know, if the domestic violence centers close down in the state, people are going to die. It really just comes down to that. We're there answering the phone 24 hours a day. Um, we're providing those situations for people or those places for people to go in those situations. And, you know, it's really about the health of the state. Like we, as a state, I believe we had 5,000 new victims of domestic violence last year. And it, it might have even been more because you're, it is more because we're seeing people from, say, the year before that weren't brand new. So we're doing a lot of the work to keep the state safe. And if we weren't there, who's going to do it? So um, we've testified. We've um, been testifying in the last few weeks in different um, on different bills and things like that. Um, the other programs that are mandated in the Century Code that are in relation to domestic violence is the supervised visitation and then uh, crime victim witness. Not all of the programs do that. Um, some do one, some do two, some do all three. Here for us in Bismarck, we're doing two. We're doing the supervised visitation and the offender treatment. So, um, you know, throughout the state, there's 20 domestic violence programs and there's 53 counties and we're covering them all. So it would only seem prudent that the state, you know, possibly kick in a few more dollars to keep people safe. The, the list of services that AARC provides is longer than I even knew about myself. Um, it's pretty comprehensive, which is awesome. I want to just ask you personally, like, you know, you mentioned like 5,000 new cases. You have all these lists of services. Just in general, what do you think... Um, why do you think these services are necessary? Like what is occurring in our, in our community that this abuse and these challenges are happening and, and, and people are being victimized in these ways? Um, so from my part-time work with DOCR, I think I really realized I, my position at the time was to interview people that had been convicted of sexual crimes. Um, rape, sexual harassment, um, GSI, gross sexual imposition. And what I found through doing many, many interviews over five, six years was that a lot of those adults had either trauma as children, um, in some way, maybe they were sexually abused or beaten, um, and they were never really A, protected or B, given the help that they needed. And, you know, I think about there's one case that sticks out for me about a guy that was 32, maybe when I interviewed him at the prison and he had literally been in some kind of incarceration since he was six. He aged out of YCC at the Youth Correctional Center with a fifth grade education. He's thinking like a 10 year old. Um, yes, he's making those choices and yes, he's um, breaking the law, but was he equipped to make adult decisions? I think that's up for discussion. 
so I think it's just important that we start with kids. Like they have, we have to model that behavior of not being abusive, of being kind, of being respectful as for children so that they are seeing those positive role models rather than the negative ones. And I'm not faulting the correctional system. I think they're overworked, they're overloaded, their caseloads are ridiculous. I think it's just a matter of how do we keep it from happening, from kids getting into the system at that age to begin with um, and, you know, tackling those problems. That probably was a little off track, but I think that a lot of the things, a lot of the people that I've seen with us in 17 years are people that have had trauma from childhood. Um, I've worked with a couple clients the entire 17 years I've been there and their patterns are repeated, but it's the offenders that know who to look for. Um, vulnerable people, people with no family connections, people that are lonely. Offenders are very good at picking out those people that are vulnerable and they're going to rely on them for housing, for money, for rides, for food. Um, and I don't think victims realize until it's almost too late that they're in a situation that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, those that are able to reach out for help were there. Um, last year, I know we helped... We had about a thousand new victims in our seven county area, and we had 230 that we were helping this year from the year before. Okay. Um, so, about 1,200 people we're working with. Of those people, I guess we're thinking of a conversation about incarceration. Is there a large overlap in terms of either folks that are previously incarcerated or is it more so their abusers are incarcerated? Can you talk a little bit about, is there an overlap between your services and incarcerated individuals? Um, you know, I think we've had, I, I don't know what an actual percentage would be, but we've definitely had a lot of victims who've had, um, you know, maybe drug charges and, a lot of the times that's tied into the abuse. So say the offender is having her purchase drugs for him, mm -hmm. um, you know, and she's doing that because if she can get those drugs, then she knows she's not going to get beat up. Sure. Um, so she's willing to risk getting in trouble for her own physical safety, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so what we do is if we have somebody that comes to us and they need shelter and they say, well, I have a warrant, we don't not help them. We just work with them on how to take care of that warrant. So maybe we have to figure out a way for somebody to watch their kids so they can go serve their time on weekends or um, help them figure out a way to raise money to pay their fines. Um, we definitely see a connection between abuse and incarceration, maybe not always on the victim side, but there's so many challenges, you know, if, if the offender's incarcerated and they share kids, how does the offender get to see his kids, you know, um, which is a pilot project we tried to launch a few years ago with the New England Women's Correctional Center was going out there to provide supervised visitation because we knew they were caseworkers were overloaded and we listened to the women out there talk about not seeing their kids for months or even years. And, you know, it, it didn't pan out, but, um, it was a good project. And I think we learned a lot about what it's like for women specifically to be incarcerated and not have access to their children. 
So that's an area I would like to see more attention to, because if there's a protection order in place, they can't have conversations about their kids or take their kids out to the prison because um, that other parent has a protection order that states they aren't allowed to have contact with that other parent. So then who's going to do that? Um, so that's where we see a lot of our overlap as well. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about getting back to um, the support you provide maybe for, um, you use the term offenders. Um, is there stigma or challenges in your organization or just in how that's perceived as like helping someone who has done something bad? From a community aspect or? Yeah, from the perspective of maybe either the folks that you work with at your organization or more of the community's perspective on that and how maybe AARC is like seen as doing something that they shouldn't be doing. If, if this is someone that needs to be punished versus someone that needs help to do better. Is there um, st stigma or conversation around that? I don't know that there, I remember when we first started talking about it a couple of years ago about whether domestic violence programs should be doing this offender treatment work and there were some programs that thought, gosh, are victims even going to come to us if they know we're helping the offender? Mm -hmm. But in reality, a lot of the time, the, the national average is a, a victim will leave seven to nine times before they leave for good, um, a situation that's not healthy or dangerous. And so obviously we know they're going back in some situations. So wouldn't it be beneficial to get to that offender and be able to hopefully help that offender so that if she does go back, it doesn't happen again. I mean, it just seemed like a no brainer to me, to be honest. Um, Definitely. But again, I have a criminal justice degree and <laughs> I kind of see some of those both sides of the coin, I guess. Like, why wouldn't we try and help um, so that somebody doesn't end up back in prison? I mean, it, it helps mm -hmm. with the recidivism rate. It helps with the overcrowding. It helps with relationships, with family dynamics. Um not to say that every person that goes through that program is going to be successful, but at least it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a choice. So if you make the choice, maybe you'll be able to have a decent life going forward. Michelle, what, is that, what does it actually look like to, to help sort of rehabilitate somebody in that way once they've done something that's sometimes quite heinous? You know, it's about the offender saying, yes, I did this. I want to change. I know I shouldn't hit the person I love. Um, help me do that. And so it's really around peer support too. So this 24-week program is like a rolling program. So if you enter into the program and the group is in lesson three, you complete the rest of them and then you go back and do one and two. So as you're coming in, there's people that are on lesson eight and lesson 14. And so they're holding each other accountable and saying, hey, you can't say that about your partner in this group. Or, hey, you can't say that you're going to do this when you go home. You know, it's about being being accountable for your behaviors. And I think all of those lessons are based around different strengths and being aware of respect towards your partner, um, about your responsibility as a partner and those kind of things. So it's definitely, even though there's facilitators, I think it's really powerful to have other former offenders holding other people accountable. 
it's peer support, right? And so that's where it's going to make a difference for somebody is if they're willing to be open and listen to their peers and then um, follow through on their program. Just from your understanding of maybe the DOCR or other correctional systems, if you have any, does does this sort of peer support and that sort of focus on community and building community in that way with offenders, does does that is that a priority, do you think, in sort of different carceral systems throughout the country or the region? Um, I I'm not sure if it is in I mean, I'm I don't work in that system, so I'm not sure I could speak to that. But I feel like places like Center Inc., you know, where it's kind of once they get out and then they go to this kind of I don't like the word halfway house, but kind of this program, like a transitional program before they're back in society. I think maybe that's where they're getting more of it because they're encouraged to, you know, go to AA meetings or get a job or volunteer or things like that. So maybe that's where it's happening a little bit more is before they enter back into society. But not everyone goes through that transition phase either. There's people released straight out of jail back to the street or back to their homes. And there's no, in in my understanding, there's no sort of plan for that person going back out, you know, many times when people are arrested for a domestic violence incident, they're spending maybe a couple days in jail and that's it. So. And then they're just back to life and they're just back to their, their regular life. And then it happens again. So, um, I don't know that there's time in the system, maybe on some of those, unless they're long-term incarcerations to build that community, which is not, a fault of the incarceration system. I think it's just the time frame of, um, of how long somebody's incarcerated, you know. Got you. Got you. Um, maybe coming back a little bit to um, the folks that you're helping, potentially victims. Um, what what terminology do you use to describe? Are they clients? Are they? Uh, uh, it varies. What, what do you use? Uh, I guess my favorite one would be survivor. Survivors. Um, you know, we see a lot of people maybe come to us as a victim, but to be able to move on and and maybe get their own place and a job and they're feeling healthy and happy and their kids are safe and, you know, those are survivors. Mm-hmm. And I think I've heard over my years people say, you saved my life. I didn't save your life. I gave you the pathway to do it or gave you the resources to do it, but you made all the choices and did the hard work. I think survivors are crazy amazing on how tough it is to leave a situation where maybe you're dependent on that other person, not only for finances, but transportation and, um, you know, buying groceries. And then you have to start over with the clothes you left with. And so anytime we have somebody that, is coming to us and, you know, says I need help and we help them and they get on their way and they're a little bit of a success story. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I think that's that's inspiring. I think, you know, words matter and um, that's a topic that's come up in, in our work and related to uh, jails and prisons is, you know, do we call these people criminals or does that does that itself make something real, you know, like if you're constantly called a criminal, it may be hard to see yourself as something else. Um, so, you know, calling or them victim, residents or a victim or, for that matter. Say that again, Isaac. 
or a victim for that matter. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I don't love the victim. I think in the past years ago, you know, it was always victim, victim, victim. But um, that's why I think I like survivor. Um, I actually had one lady say she was a thriver. Um <laughs> And, and I thought that was awesome too, but yeah, labels are for wine, right? <laughs> you know, I think I just, I hate labels in general. So I, I think they're people, they're mm-hmm. people that need resources. They're people that need help. They're people that need support. And, um, and that's what we're here to do, I guess. Your organization provides, you know, quite a few various services from shelter to education, um, planning. Are, are there any gaps you see? In, in what you're able to provide or what's provided, in, you know, more broadly in, in Bismarck and Mandan? So one thing I'm involved in and have been involved in since I started there is the Missouri Valley Coalition for Homeless People. Um, and so a lot of us really interconnect with services, um, youth works, ministry on the margins, community action. Um, we all offer different services, but we all connect really well. And Three of the areas that we've identified through our strategic planning of unmet needs overall in the community are transportation, low barrier shelters, and um, child affordable childcare. And that really rings true for us as well. Um, a lot of the jobs that some of our clients are doing are working are retail or overnight stocking or fast food, and you know those aren't eight to five jobs. And when we don't have a bus system that runs past 6.30 at night or, um, uh, you know, public transportation, there's not a real good taxi service here anymore. Um, makes it really difficult for our clients that live on the south side of town to go to North Walmart for their job. So that's overall in the community an issue. Um, when I say low barrier shelter, we don't have a shelter in this community that allows you to be under the influence or... Um, a sex offender or um, some other, you know, maybe a really strong mental health diagnosis, there's no shelter that allow a person with those issues to stay. And that's really a disservice to our community. Um, It's a basic need to have a roof over your head, even if it's just for a night. And so that's definitely something that our community here is lacking Uh, Fargo's got great programs. There's other really great shelters in the state, too. And that's what we need. Um, We have variations of shelters, but nothing that really incorporates that low barrier. Um, Ministry on the Margins is a great example. They've been operating a coffee house since last year, kind of an overnight sit-stand kind of place. um, So you can get in out of the elements and and have a cup of coffee and, you know, just be safe. Um, however, it's not a shelter. It's not somewhere you can live. It's not somewhere you can sleep. It's just kind of a out-of-the-elements type place. But it's filling a gap. They're seeing sometimes 50 people a night coming through there. So and shelter is des- definitely necessary. And then affordable childcare. Um, my son just had twins Thursday and they have a two-year-old and three kids in daycares, $2,100 a month. So if you don't have some kind of really good job, it's almost impossible to pay for daycare. And we see that with our shelters a lot. You know, if we have a mom in there with four kids, um, it's almost easier and more economical to not work because if you're going to go work at a fast food place for 
$15 an hour, how are you going to pay for daycare for four kids? It just doesn't make financial sense. So affordable child care is another big issue we've noticed with a lot of the clients in the community. I want to ask a little bit more about ARC and maybe specifically um, what help does AARC need to improve and maybe extend the services you provide to more people? Is it money? Is it... Uh, it's always money. Uh, help from legislators? Uh, that too. <laughs> um, you know, I think we try, you know, a lot of, let's just take our budget, for instance. We're about 55% grant funded. Um, grants, whether they're state, local, federal, all have criteria, all have reporting requirements, all have um, specific things that they allow you to do. So some of the areas that we're short in is, say, legal assistance. Um, you know, when we help somebody get a protection order, we're not attorneys, but it would be really nice to be able to call up an attorney and say, hey, I have this client. She really left with the clothes on her back. She's in this situation. She just needs somebody to sit with her and make sure that she doesn't get railroaded in this court hearing. Um, we don't really have access to that. We've We have a few attorneys that'll work with payments and things like that, but we don't really have just somebody that'll pick up pro bono cases like that. Um, Legal Aid of North Dakota is financially strapped sometimes and aren't able to help either, but um, we try to use the resources that, that are out there. Um, the child care piece, we provide a little child care at our shelters. Um, but yeah, if we had a child care center, that'd be amazing because then, you know, our clients could all work if they wanted to and, and know their kids were being taken care of. Um, you know, our facilities, when I became director for almost four years ago now, I swear everything's breaking down. Furnaces and air conditioners and tubs have to be replaced and showers. And so I don't think people always realize, yes, you have these shelters and it's great, but they also take a lot of work to maintain and, and keep the lights on. So that's where Seeds of Hope comes in for us. It's really important. Like I said, 30% of our budget, unrestricted dollars, um, you know, pays for salaries of our, our store employees, pays for upkeep of some of our buildings and all of that. So, um, yeah, it, it'd be great if there was like a fund for, you know, just maintenance of your properties. Mm -hmm. um, we own our shelter. We own our office building. We own our apartment building. Um, we lease our transitional center. We own our store. So um, the director prior to me was there 40 years. She built it pretty much from the ground up, starting with two advocates up to where we are now with 70 employees. So it's taken uh -huh. a lot to build it, and now it takes a lot to maintain it. Yeah. This is really challenging work. There's a lot of aspects to it, obviously, and we've talked about some of them. Um just, I'm curious, you personally, why are you doing this type of work? Um, what's your vision for it? How, why are you inspired to be doing this every day? Because it's it's very hard. Housing and homelessness has really been my biggest passion for while I've worked there. Um, it just intertwines with the domestic violence and everything. But it's just kind of that impact that you can have on others, whether it's small or big. Um, I don't think you ever know how you affect somebody's life, you know, and it could just be like a passing comment to somebody, um, you know, I like your outfit that could have turned that whole person's 
viewpoint around for that day. Um, and I just think it's, it's important to be good humans. Like no one should suffer from lack of food or lack of housing or, or be in situations that aren't safe or, um, dangerous. And I guess I, I grew up in a really good family. I had great, I have great parents. I have three sisters, lots of nieces and nephews, and we really didn't have any of those situations in our family, but I've known a lot of people that have, and I've seen a lot of situations that can go very badly when those resources aren't available. So I guess it's my part to do what I can do to help others not have to suffer any of those situations. It's fantastic. Um, maybe to close out, um, are there any notable or a notable success story or an inspirational story um, from the successes of your organization that uh, might be inspiring to potential supporters or policymakers thinking about uh, the services that AARC provides? I mean, that's really what makes the job worth doing, to be honest, is when somebody has a success and it doesn't have to necessarily be their entire life has been turned around. But, um, you know, if if you've never had to go apply for food stamps or housing assistance or um, TANF or whatever, it can be very daunting when you're dealing with a crisis. And so to have somebody sit down and say, here's a 12-page form to fill out if you want $49 in food stamps every month, a lot of people are just going to say, I can't deal with this and walk away. So sometimes the success for us is somebody picking up the phone and making an appointment for themselves. Um, sometimes it's taking care of a medical issue that they've just been putting on the back burner and haven't dealt with. Um, but sometimes it's it's, it is changing your life. I've worked with a particular client off and on for 17 years and probably four relationships, three relationships, one of them twice that she's gotten out of, um, that weren't, that weren't good. And today she was approved for her first apartment. She's 42 years old and she's never really lived on her own in her own place. She's been in shelters and in bad relationships most of her adult life. Um, so huge win in my opinion. Um, she has a job yeah. and she's she was approved for a house today. Uh, we've had her cats in foster care, so she gets her cats back. Um, so those are those are like the little things. Like she's done that work herself. We've probably pushed her and supported her to get those things done, but she's made those changes and hopefully she's succeeds. I mean, there are frustrating days as well. Don't get me wrong <laughs> where you just want to say, please just do this. But you know, people are adults and, um, you know, they have to make those decisions, and those choices themselves. And all we do is try to support them and, and offer those resources. So, yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for uh, talking with us and having this conversation. It's been really excellent to talk with you uh, and learn more about the Abused Adult Resource Center. And uh, we definitely look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks awesome. for being with us. Thank you. Episode 2. The Community Matters Podcast, JLG Architects.